It's a real pleasure for me to open up God's word for us today as part of our first Christmas service. And we're thinking about one of us, the fact that God became one of us. But before I do um, begin, uh, let's watch a short video together. And now this is Fuzzy Feelings and it's Apple's holiday film. Now, according to Apple, it's a cold, harsh world where doors are slammed in your face and people sit at home on their MacBooks imagining unique ways to torture you. Did you see the name of her, the project she was working on was called Fuzzy Feelings? <laughs> Apple know that connection with others is so much of what it means to be human. Yet it's clear, isn't it, that none of us care for one another in the ways that we know we should. But according to Apple, as we've just seen, the right act of care from another human being can change the way we see each other and even the world. The care of a friend can be a kind of salvation to us. And their holiday film says, you have the power to make the change to stop slamming doors and to start thinking about more positive things. According to Apple's Christmas film, you make the holidays. And it is terrific storytelling. Some of you right now are thinking about trading in your Samsungs and Nokias for the latest iPhone. And I just don't think that Apple go far enough. I don't think their hopes are high enough. Their Christmas story is too small. Because as we all know, we do live in a cold and harsh world. And although we really do try, we often don't care as we should. We fail each other and even ourselves. And at some point, the doors will slam again. And the negative thoughts will return and the cycle will continue and then you multi multiply that across our various relationships across families across communities amongst nations and across history and suddenly things seem a little bit bleak and in the spirit of modern progress apple have told us that we we make the holidays that we have the power to change but do we and i don't think it's talking about surface change either i think we're talking here or even wanting hoping for a kind of molecular change a change that actually breaks the cycle and makes a harsh world gentle you see if apple were really brave if they wanted to tell a really big story of the power to change, they would have made one of their characters perfect. Never to have slammed a door, not a single ugly thought, a genuine break in the cycle. 
But Christmas, according to Apple, isn't that kind of story. But Christmas, according to the New Testament book of Hebrews, is that kind of story. The passage we had read to us earlier paints a picture of a break in the cycle, a tear in the fabric of reality, a promise of change on a molecular level, something like an edit in the human DNA. The perfect embodiment of care is born into our cold and harsh world shivering in the flesh and it turns out it turns out that the care of a friend can be salvation to us and we'll see this one what we'll see is that resolving our human story required a humble human prince and that two, overcoming our human struggle requires the help of a human saviour. And I think the good news of message, the good news message of what we'll receive from God's word today is that God himself has come down to break the cycle. God became one of us to resolve our ancient human story and to overcome our most formidable human struggle. And so if you're anything like the good people at Apple, your Christmas story is probably too small. The Christmas story, according to Hebrews 2, is the story of hope for humanity. And so let's get into it. Now, if you notice, if you've got Hebrews 2 uh, open in front of you, it's a fairly complicated passage, um, and it starts with a quotation from an Old Testament song, it's Psalm 8. It's a song about how God, the creator of all things, um, and, and it's a song about how he must be so far beyond us if he created the planets and the stars and the animals, birds and fish, and of course, us. But the part of the song that the writer of the, of the letter to the Hebrews chooses to quote isn't just about God's scale. The writer chooses to quote the bit about God's care. Care for his creatures. He's a heavenly father who has mankind on his mind. You see the consistent teaching of the bible is that god created human beings with dignity and value and crowns them with a special status and gives them a special responsibility in his world and verse 8 if you look at that describes that as god putting everything under their feet or really what we're to understand here is God says, I'm putting everything under your caring control. Divinely appointed deputies created to embody God's care for each other and for the world. But as you see, the writer continues. We see that things don't actually work out that way. And a key turning point in the story of humanity is when the first humans disobey God. 
They weren't content with their roles as deputies and wanted to live according to their own plans and designs and so they and every human being after them turns inward away from the care of God. Now the problem with biting the hand that made you is that inevitably care becomes more like a memory than a reality to you. But more significantly, slamming the door on the one who is ultimately in control of creation and the source of all life leaves another door wide open to chaos and death. And so we do look around the world today, don't we? And we look around our own lives and we do see hints of goodness and fading glory. But we also see the chaotic consequences of our disconnection with our maker. And the consequences of our failure to care like he cares. And so our human experience generally is fundamentally confusing and frustrating. We're constantly feeling as if we are missing our potential, leaving it unreached. And the writer to the Hebrews says that we were made to rule the world. Yet we struggle to control even our own thoughts and fuzzy feelings. But look at verse 9 with me. But we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while. And the writer here is using the language of that song again to show how Jesus joined the human race in the flesh, born as a baby, born into that human, that same human experience. But in ways that we don't experience ourselves, he is crowned with glory and honor as God has always intended Now, if you know a little bit of the Bible, your mind might be turning to Philippians 2, which includes a hymn about Jesus' humility in taking the journey from heaven to earth in total obedience to the Father. After explaining what Jesus did, the hymn in Philippians ends with these words. It says, Jesus did all of this, therefore... God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And you can see that it continues. And just like the words of that hymn, the writer of the Hebrews is showing us that Jesus does not fail as we do. He is the truly perfect human being not a single slammed door or ugly thought he obediently fulfilled the calling to embody God's care and notice that God the father rewards Jesus he is crowned because he suffered death well it says a little bit more than that doesn't it look at the end of verse 9 he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, here's the thing. Humanity had got itself in such a state that care 
the kind of care that could break the cycle, care that could straighten out humanity's story, would have to include the resolving of the problem of suffering and death. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying that right now Jesus is sat in heaven in glory because that's exactly the kind of care that he came down and embodied. Jesus is crowned because he was born, because he suffered and because he died for the care of others. Jesus is the caring, humble, servant king that our human story needs. Now, the writer of the Hebrews lived long before um, billion-pound multinational corporations uh, became uh, interested in creating short, feel-good films. But if he was around today, bear with me, I think he'd probably create something along the lines of this. Now, it's impossible to imagine this, isn't it? But go ahead and try with me anyway. So, opening scene, the camera pans to the throne in heaven. It's at the centre of the control room of all things. And now there's bound to be like a few flashing lights, a big red button, all the things you normally see in a control room. And it's this control room where God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit have existed in perfect, unbroken, Trinitarian connection and care from eternity past. And then the Father, the Father sends the Son on a journey. The Father says to the Son, I need you to do exactly what I say. Where I'm sending you, you won't need to pack a bag. And the glory and honour that you've known from eternity, well, let's lay that glory to one side for now. I want you to go down into the chaos. And don't bring attention to yourself. In fact, make yourself nothing. I want you to experience the chaos like they do. And I need you to do something for me in the chaos. I need you to be a servant. I need you to be the perfect embodiment of my care. Because I have daughters. And I have sons down there that have not left my mind so I need you to find them I need you to empty yourself and do whatever it takes to bring my children home and the screen would slowly fade to black and now this is Hollywood and then silence and waiting and hope and then the sharp sound of a newborn baby would break the silence. And the baby's in agony, of course. It's just taken its first breaths. 
using those lungs for the first time, screaming, and it's still in the darkness. But we hear the sound of new life in the chaos. But the chaos gets louder and louder and slowly takes over. The busyness and the rattle of life, the harsh sounds of the human story fill the air. And then suddenly, another scream. But in the darkness, this isn't the scream of a newborn baby. The child has become a man and these are the adult cries of deep agony. These are the unimaginable sounds of metal piercing human flesh. The unmistakable sounds of a man being crucified. The sound of new life in the chaos. And then silence. And then slowly fading up from the darkness our blurry vision is able to refocus and we're back we're back in the control room back to the blinky lights and the big red button god the father god the spirit and god the son but something about the son has changed he's returned from his journey and he's recognizable but he's hurt or at least he's scarred And the father has given him a throne to sit on. And he's wearing a crown. and He's brimming with incandescent light. He has taken up his glory again. But it is somehow weightier and thicker. And slowly as the full picture comes into view and focus, the camera slowly zooming out to take in the full scene, we see that the sun... He's not alone. He's not alone. He has brought the father's children home. And slowly the shimmery Apple text across the screen would read, He makes the holidays. And now I don't think that would sell many iPhones, to be honest. (laughs) But it would make the point. It would make the point that new life always arrives in chaos. Where a giant Hannah, I just saw them walk in with a new baby. Hey, (laughs) new life always arrives in chaos. (laughs) They know that. Jesus is born into the overcrowded chaos of a Bethlehem back street. We all know that birth. Human birth is chaos. Labour is chaos. I've been there three times. Doing it with the easy job, obviously. <laughs> Life and death delicately hanging in the balance. Chaos, agony and joy intermingled. Chaos. And church, we need to pay close attention to how God the Father tends to work because we see the chaos don't we we feel the pain and the harshness of ugly thoughts and the coldness of doors slammed in our face the chaos is always with us but what we see in the big 
Christmas story, according to Hebrews, is that the author of the human story and the author of life itself has birthed something new in that chaos. New life for a baby and new life for many sons and daughters. You see, the son's path to future glory and a world made new went downward into our present chaos. And his humility and obedience is an example to us. It may well be time to adjust our perspective on what God can do in our chaos. You see, we're waiting We're waiting for Jesus Christ to return and make all things new. The final chapter of a world made new has been written. Your story, the human story, it does have a resolution. But now, here, it's chaos. In the darkness. God has used the cold, hard edges of our present chaos to shape for us a perfect, humble, human prince who even in your chaos is in control. He's doing you good. He's bringing you to your eternal home And he leads his people down the path he took. And I know the hard details of many of your lives. I know that life hurts and is hard. But don't lose hope. Don't throw in the towel. Pay close attention to how the Father works. The path to eternal glory goes down and through the chaos of life. And perhaps there are others of us who need to walk that path of humility and obedience down into the chaos. And that is the chaos of caring for others. Some of us need to hear that as an encouragement to move towards others in care. This Christmas. And so resolving our human story required a humble human prince. And he has done it. And my second point. Overcoming our human struggle requires the help of a human saviour. Now the first half of our passage. I hope you've been able to see how God the Father works in sending and crowning his son because of his son's care for us. Now, in the second half of the passage, we're going to see the detail of what the son actually does for us and how he feels about it, or rather, more precisely, how he feels about us. And now again, this is a fairly complex passage. And so we're going to try something. I'm going to just walk us slowly through the passage, picking out what Jesus does. And big spoiler here, just to let you know the ending. 
The point I'm making is that he has done a whole lot for you. So number one, Jesus makes his people holy, meaning Jesus brings those who are outside of God's approval and acceptance, he brings them inside God's approval and acceptance. Maybe there's a, it's actually a stronger image here, isn't it? It's, it's that God gives Jesus the power to adopt children into the family. God the Father gives God the Son a big red button to edit his people's DNA. Number two, Jesus feels no shame towards his people. We'll come back to that. Number three, Jesus looks forward to a celebration with his people. The writer here bolts together three Old Testament passages that the writer describes as Jesus' own words and written long before he set foot on earth. And the sense is that Jesus sees a final mountaintop moment where he and his people sing praises in the presence of the Father, finally, faithfully making it home. Number four, Jesus lived in solidarity with his people, experiencing human life, standing shoulder to shoulder with us, a brother in arms. Number five, Jesus died for his people. He tasted death for everyone. He faced the ultimate disconnection, disregard and darkness that none of us want to face. He did that for us. We're not even halfway. Number six, Jesus dismantled the power of death and the devil. Now people say, don't they? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We say that because we're aware that the worst thing that can happen to a human being is that they die. Jesus became human so that he could die. So that he could experience the worst things we do. Death. And a horrific, evil, unjust death at that. Die as a human and come out the other side. Number seven. Jesus frees his people from the fear of death. And so Jesus coming out the other side of death, his bodily resurrection is the first of many. And the sense here is that Jesus shows that dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you. In fact, because of how the story ends, because of the resolution he won for us, death for his people makes them better. He empties out the threat of death. Number eight, Jesus, and this is broad, Jesus helps his people. It's not angels. He knows that we're no angels. Number nine, Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest. Now a priest represents you to God and God to you. A faithful priest without mercy would be a harsh and cold representative because he wouldn't understand or have empathy for your story. But a merciful priest who wasn't faithful, well, maybe that priest would be understanding and gentle, but be in the same predicament as you. 
powerless to break the cycle. Merciful and faithful means he can understand our struggle without getting stuck underneath it. Number 10, Jesus makes atonement for the sins of his people. Put simply, Jesus is able to offer the Father's comprehensive forgiveness, making a person innocent of all accusation, guilt, shame, failure, and error. And the language here is of a living priest, a priest who is on the job right now. And so we're meant to sense forgiveness as a live reality being applied as and when it's needed. Number 11, final one. (laughs) Jesus helps his people when tempted. Meaning Jesus, present with his people by God, the Holy Spirit, coaches his people through their struggles and suffering. He lives to help us embody the care of the Father in our daily lives. And over time, he trains us to slam less doors and how to use computers for good things and how not to let our lowest desires run away with us. He helps us in our temptations. And so the writer piles up these truths about Jesus to show us that he came down to experience and understand our lives, to take up our struggle and to get us through those struggles, to get us home to the Father. And so overcoming our human struggle requires the help of a living human Saviour. Put simply, in every possible way we need it, and oh, don't we need it, Jesus is here to help. But help isn't always simple. Accepting help isn't easy. I mean, accepting help can make us feel needy or vulnerable. Or even as if we are unwanted burdens on other people. Now in this picture you'll see little Adam Nash and his sister Molly Nash. Adam was born under very strange circumstances. If you were to look at him or look at him as a baby you wouldn't think much initially. But Adam Nash was the world's first so-called saviour sibling. He was born in the year 2000 through a set of controversial medical procedures and he's known as a saviour sibling because blood from his umbilical cord was donated only weeks after his birth to his older sister Molly Nash who through his donation was cured of a life-threatening genetic disease. Now, the procedures involved are controversial because before Adam was born or even planned, his parents knew that Molly was ill and that she would die in her struggle against this disease. And so after doctors suggested it to them, they agreed to a set of cutting edge medical procedures that meant they would bear a child who was not ill. 
who did not carry the genetic disease. Adam was born to save his sibling. And now I'd love to be a fly on the wall at their Christmas time in the Nash household. And you just have to wonder, has little Adam, maybe forgetting to get his sister a gift, maybe he's got a get out of jail free card, Christmas morning passing, <laughs> passing presents around me, just like, oh, he can point to himself. He can. He can yeah, I, you know, I'm literally the gift of life to you, sis. Come on. And he looks cheeky enough to do that, doesn't he? <laughs> but you do have to wonder, all joking aside, how Molly Nash feels in the complexity of that situation. Because needing help does make us vulnerable. There's a kind of power dynamic. And the Nash family's story inspired Jodie Pickled, a New York Times bestselling author, to write her novel, My Sister's Keeper. Now, you may have read it or you may have seen the film adaptation starring Cameron Diaz. The novel imagines the emotional turmoil connected with having a saviour sibling born for you. And the story focuses on two sisters, a terminally ill sister and her younger sibling born to be a saviour. And for the early parts of the younger sibling's life, she is comfortable with the arrangement. She's regularly donating blood and bone marrow to help her sister until there comes a moment as a young teenager where she is asked to donate one of her kidneys to her ill sister. And in the first of, admittedly, many twists, I don't know if any of you have seen it, uh, many twists in the story, she says no. And she seeks legal protection from her parents. And so suddenly we're drawn into the imagination of that ill sister. Her life completely at the mercy of another, powerless to save herself. But as the story progresses, it is revealed that it is in fact the ill sister that has asked the saviour sibling to no longer be her saviour. The ill sister has only seen limited improvement in her overall health. She'd begun to understand the toll. The treatment was taking on a younger sister and essentially says to her, you didn't choose this for yourself. This was our parents' choice. You had no say in this or control over being born to save me. And that's not fair. You shouldn't have to carry this burden. I'd rather die in my disease than live by your mercy. And it's a shocking revelation of the complexity and vulnerability involved in desperate situations. And there is a chance that we might find ourselves feeling those same feelings that she felt. Although none of us here, as far as I know, have a biological saviour sibling, we might think about Jesus, what Molly Nash in her illness and neediness may have thought from time to time about her younger brother, Adam. It is, of course, possible to respond to Jesus' help by thinking, 
I'm not sure I can be saved. I'm not even sure I'm worth saving. There's no way you chose this for yourself. It's not fair for anyone to be born to save. I'd rather die in my disease than live by your mercy. And yet the big story of Christmas, the way the book of Hebrews tells it, is that in some sense, Jesus is a saviour sibling. He is born to be a close enough match to us, but he's not stricken with the same sin disease as us. He's born to save. And is able to help us overcome our struggle. But we also see that Jesus is no normal sibling. You see, we read at the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning, eternity past, before the creation of the world, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Church, Jesus Christ is the only person in human history who chose to be born. He knew. He knew that becoming flesh was going down into the chaos of the human story of struggle. He knew. Before even the neurons, neutrons, were there in the human brain started firing, and the muscle of his heart started beating, he knew. He knew that going down, birthed into the chaos, and then being lifted up, pinned up on that cross, was the only way to embody his father's care. He knew. And he knew that if he went down into the chaos in humility... If he was lifted up on the cross in service, he could cure our illnesses. He knew. He knew what we needed. And he knew what he wanted to be to us. He knew he could do it. And he did. He knew that if he went down into the darkness for us, He knew that if he would rise, he knew that he would rise and he would reign forever in glorious light for us. He knew, kind of like Apple knows, that the right act of care from the right human being can change the way we see each other and the world. A caring friend of sinners a big brother, a human saviour, by his design, through his choice. You see, he knew 
that to make your journey from chaos through to glory, he had to make his journey from glory down to chaos. And that means he is not ashamed of your journey. He's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed of the family of failures he is saving for himself. I hope you're beginning to see that you are not a burden to him. He is here to help, yes, but he's also happy to help. And actually, here's the thing. His help is more often hindered by our unwillingness to receive it than it is by his willingness to give it. None of us are so bad or so broken that he can't help us happily. And you may think that you don't need it, but you do. And you may not fully understand it. You don't have to. And you may know that you don't deserve it. And you'd be right. (laughs) But friends, don't reject it. Accept the care and the help of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, one day at a time. So let me close here. Let me ask you this. What, what is the big Christmas story? It's probably two things. We need help. <laughs> and actually God becoming one of us is a sign that our problem is more significant than we ever really allow ourselves to admit. We need help. And... All the help we need is here. You see, God becoming one of us is also a sign that we are more loved and cared for than we could ever have imagined, hoped for, or even cried out for. Created beings never outgrow the need for their creator's care. And friends, behind it, I hope you're seeing this, behind it all is care. Our creator's care. Our father in heaven. And until we've accepted his loving care and are welcomed back into his family, trying to follow the son's humble example without him will eventually crush us. We cannot make the holidays, but we were never meant to. Only he breaks our cycle of chaos through his perfection and mercy. He makes the holiday and makes us humble and holy sons and daughters. And I think that's why Apple's Christmas story is too small. It's not hopeful enough. Not hopeful enough for our struggles, for our story. And so the Christmas story, according to the Bible then, 
is the moment where God placed a baby boy in an ancient Bethlehem major so that for us he could place an older brother, a saviour sibling, on the eternal throne of heaven. And if you let him, you have an older brother who loves you to death and is happy to take care of you today, tomorrow, forevermore. Let me pray for us before we sing again. Glory to the newborn King. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. He rose with healing in his wings. Mild, meek. Humble he lays his glory to one side. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons and daughters of earth. Born to give us second birth. Glory. Glory to you Jesus our newborn king. Amen. Amen.